1: Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery.
2: Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
3: You're listening to the CBS Sunday Morning Podcast on Play.it, brought to you by the new film Trumbo.
4: Good morning, I'm Charles Osgood and this is Sunday Morning. A fighting chance is all anyone battling a serious disease can ask for. And a fighting chance is exactly what those with one such disease are now getting. This morning Leslie Stahl has what for her is a very personal cover story.
5: That's my husband, Aaron Latham. He and everyone else in this boxing class has Parkinson's. It's a progressive neurological disorder that affects nearly a million Americans. So what does boxing do for you?
6: You kind of get your physical courage back and your mental courage seems to kind of come along.
5: Later on Sunday morning, Parkinson's disease sufferers fight back in the ring.
4: An accomplished photographer has been reaching new heights, and our Lee Cowan went along for the ride.
7: For Vincent LaFerre, getting to new heights is the only way to really capture a view of something different. But he's no daredevil.
8: I'm nervous when I take the escalator up, but for some reason, in a helicopter, dang me out 12,000 feet, totally fine.
7: What our lives down there look like from a camera way up here, later on Sunday morning. Actress
4: Jennifer Connelly spends plenty of time in front of cameras. Cameras that seem to pick up on one particular feature, as she tells Tracy Smith.
9: This, this is real. Ask Jennifer Connelly why she plays so many serious roles, and the answer you get is actually pretty funny. I
2: tend to get cast more in dramas.
9: And that's okay? I think it's my eyebrows. It's very your eyebrows? Ser- I look very serious. <laughs> look very stern and those eyebrows really get a workout in her latest film (laughs) Jennifer Connelly ahead this Sunday morning Um.
4: carved in stone is a story about skill and tradition told this morning by Michelle Miller
10: you can find their work on some of our most beloved national monuments from the John F Kennedy gravesite to Washington, D.C.'s World War II memorial. So everywhere on this memorial, everywhere we see a word, you did it.
11: Yep, I did all these.
10: Ahead this Sunday morning, a family whose legacy is carved in stone.
4: Jim Axelrod talks with presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. Seth Doan has sent us a dispatch from Korea. Steve Hartman has a case of lost and found. Those stories and more. Ahead, a bird's eye view.
12: Go, go, go.
4: But first, fighting back against yeah. Parkinson's.
12: Yeah.
3: based on the true story Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood in 1947 he was blacklisted for his beliefs
5: Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors.
3: so he rewrote the rules, we do the one thing everyone says we can't we write, Trumbo is one of the year's must see pictures, Brian Cranston towers, be prepared to go to prison Helen Mirren is terrific
13: whisper a movie you've written in secret maybe I've even heard of it maybe you have,
3: Trumbo, rated are under 17 not admitted without parent only in theaters this november everywhere thanksgiving
4: for a fighting chance against disease people will sometimes go to unlikely places even it turns out to the boxing ring our cover story is reported now by leslie stall of 60 minutes
5: come on aaron that's my husband aaron latham come on with his boxing coach <laughs> He and everyone else in the class has Parkinson's.
12: Give me all you got, come on. Come on,
5: boom, boom. It's a progressive neurological disorder that affects nearly a million Americans. You don't hear about very many with the disease getting better.
6: I think of Parkinson's as being the incredible shrinking disease. It doesn't shrink itself. Parkinson's doesn't shrink, Parkinson's shrinks you.
14: And I want you to reach up.
6: Aaron and his fellow
5: Parkinsonians aged 45 to 92, a part of this new program that aims to stop the shrinking, if not reverse it. Together. Each exercise works on a symptom.
12: They go up. Come on. Give me 10. Up.
5: Stretching is for their stiffness. Footwork for balance.
12: Ready? Boom.
5: Come on. Punching. To steady their tremors. Boom!
12: Yes.
1: Go. Ha!
5: Ha-da! Shouting to counter their soft voice syndrome. And
6: sparring for coordination.
5: So what does boxing do for you?
6: Boxing is just the opposite of Parkinson's. It, everything is designed instead of to shrink you, everything's designed to pump you up. First of all, you get to put on these great gloves It gives you enormous, giant hands and a different attitude toward the world. You kind of get your physical courage back, and your mental courage seems to kind of come along.
5: The program, called Rock Steady Boxing, uses professional boxing techniques, maybe a little more gently. Developed in Indianapolis in 2006, it has spread to over 50 gyms worldwide. Come on! When Italian born Roberta Morangu first saw Rocksteady at a medical conference,
12: I just thought it was genius. Why didn't I come up with this when I saw it? <laughs> I thought it was an amazing program.
5: When she's not coaching, Morangu is a researcher at the Weill Cornell Medical College in New York working on gene therapies for Parkinson's.
12: My main goal has always been the quest for a cure, finding a cure. But lately, in the last couple of years, I felt there was something missing. And when I found this program, I thought it was something that I could do to help right now in the present. Left, right. Come on.
5: So two years ago, she and her husband, Alex Montaldo, an actor, went to Indiana to learn how to teach rock steady. Good job. They then approached the folks at Gleason's in Brooklyn, a kind of grungy, no-frills, old-school gym where Muhammad Ali trained and De Niro trained for Raging Bull. Get him! Gleason's donates a ring for them three days a week. It's kind of curious. I always heard that Muhammad Ali got Parkinson's from boxing
12: when you say boxing for Parkinson's it's kind of counter counter counterintuitive yes but the difference is this we do non-contact boxing so they don't fight against each other they can fight against Alex in the ring and they love it (laughs) and they don't get hurt they don't get hurt they don't get hit
5: but (laughs) what about Alex I noticed that you wear body armor yeah (laughs) you get yourself all protected yeah
1: and I'm glad I have to because
5: the you afraid they're gonna hurt you? you no, know,
10: well, one of our boxers specifically, he's the very reason why I had
6: to buy that.
10: He,
5: he hurt, hurt you?
6: It was good pain, because that showed me how, how... strong he became. Yeah, it's incredible. I think I hit him a little bit too hard in his ribs. <laughs> and he got home, and he decided that it was time to get some body armor.
5: <laughs> you really smacked him one.
12: More! Less, no. more! Come on!
5: Was your right uppercut or was something
6: like that? I think it was a left.
7: <laughs> left. Come on.
5: When Les Mills, a New York City teacher and gym coach, was diagnosed with Parkinson's, it hit him hard.
10: When he first came in, he was not in great shape, both
1: physically and psychologically. He was um, pretty depressed, silver,
6: didn't really want to do much. Well, you should see him now.
12: Come on, Les.
6: When I first started coming in, I was not able to walk straight to the ring. I would have to wobble to the ring. It was very hard to walk. Now it's piece of, I don't want to say a piece of cake, I don't want to sound cocky, but physically it made a big difference.
5: Everyone we spoke to in Aaron's class said they've seen an improvement. Part of the secret is camaraderie.
12: Everything you got.
5: And competition and getting pumped up. That's why the trainers
6: act like drill sergeants.
12: Knock him out! They
6: make you do what you're supposed to do, not what you want to do. They push you so hard that it becomes a habit, a good habit.
12: Come on, Aaron.
6: And she particularly is a slave driver. (laughs) Come on, Aaron. Come on, Aaron. You can do it. Don't quit on me now.
12: If we don't see a jump from Aaron, we're gonna do push-ups.
10: Like
1: in the army.
12: Come on, jump, Erin. Does she yell at you?
6: constantly
5: <laughs> and it's okay with you
6: well i'm not sure about that but it's not going to help me to <laughs> complain
5: when he's not boxing aaron is a novelist a screenwriter and a playwright how bad is it to be interviewed by your wife
6: it gives you the creeps <laughs> i in fact normally this hand is perfectly steady there's actually a little tremor there now
5: just because i'm interviewing you
6: yeah
1: don't just go go Pah,
5: You really work them. I could not believe how arduous the hour is.
10: We need to show them how much they can do, because they don't know.
12: Come on, with me. Ha, ha. Come on. There you go. Ha, ha.
5: What about watching your wife? Acting like she's a, a, a sergeant in the army shouting at these guys what do you think of that I like it? You always <laughs> said that
12: about me <laughs> when these people with Parkinson's disease step in that gym and they're being yelled at by a coach they're no longer a person with Parkinson's disease they're a fighter they're a boxer and that's the difference they don't feel that disease anymore
5: Stephanie Combs Miller is the director of research at the University of Indianapolis's College of Health Sciences. She conducted the first major study on the effects of boxing therapy on Parkinson's.
12: We studied people over a two-year period who participated in boxing, and we didn't see any progression of the disease in in the people that boxed.
5: It arrested the disease.
12: Right, in fact, in some cases, they were better after the two-year period of time. Their function was better.
5: The theory is that boxing
12: generates a renewed growth of the kinds of brain cells damaged by the disease. High-intensity type exercise can be what we call neuroprotective, that it enhances the uptake of the dopamine in the brain. It can improve uh, growth of neurons. And you're saying it enhances, it it goes to what the
5: problem is.
12: Right. But all the evidence we have now shows that with exercise, particularly high-intensity exercise, we can improve strength. We can improve their walking ability and their balance and their quality of life and likely, we're also seeing changes within the brain as well.
5: She says that one of the patients she studied, Tom Timberlake, shows what Rocksteady can do.
12: And he'd had Parkinson's disease about six years and had really declined in health, almost become a recluse, wasn't getting out. Found Rocksteady, started in. And this gentleman, nine years later, you wouldn't recognize him. He is a fire. And he is better today, in 2015, than before he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He's really better better now than before he was diagnosed. It saved his life. Nobody's saying boxing
5: is a cure, just that people seem to improve. Does this make you feel more optimistic about your disease?
6: Yeah, my left arm used to shake all the time, the whole arm, and it used to really go.
5: Wow, wow.
6: And that's just from punching a bag and doing exercises.
5: So do you get a sense it's actually slowing the progression?
6: Well, it's certainly slowing the symptoms. Are we ready? What Aaron is doing...
12: Just go for it, just go.
6: ...is
5: something inconceivable a year ago. Well, you did great. I always wanted to shake your hand. Go
6: in there. Go in there.
4: Coming up, what do you see? And Now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac. November 8th, 1884, 131 years ago today the day Hermann Rorschach was born in Zurich, Switzerland. He grew up to become a psychiatrist and the creator of the inkblot test that bears his name. Rorschach would show his subjects 10 inkblots, one at a time, and ask them to describe what the images looked like to them. He believed their answers might provide a window into their social behavior. Although he died in 1922 at just age 37, Rorschach's inkblot test lives on. It became a staple of psychology and of popular culture as well. Artist Andy Warhol created a series of inkblot-like paintings in the 1980s. And the test played a bit part in the 1995 film Batman Forever, when star Val Kilmer talked with a police psychiatrist, played by Nicole Kidman. You have a thing for bats?
12: Well, that's a washout, Mr. Wayne. An ink blot. People see what they want. I think the question would be, do you have a thing for bats?
4: The test has been the subject of controversy as well. Many practitioners objected when the original ten ink blots were posted on Wikipedia back in 2009. What do you see? Well, I, I really don't know. I... They argued. The images would lose their effectiveness if future test subjects saw them in advance. On another front, some subjects question whether there's scientific proof that the test is even valid. So is the inkblot test valid or not? As Dr. Rorschach used to say, it all depends on how you look at it. Based on the true story. Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In
3: 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs.
5: Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors.
3: So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific.
13: Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have.
3: Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere thanksgiving
4: behold the alphabet carved in stone vermont red slate to be exact the painstaking work of master craftsman nick benson michelle miller has the story of a unique american family
10: with a mallet and chisel the slowest writer in newport rhode island averages just two letters an hour Even when Nick Benson breaks out his power tools, he's not much faster. But for stone carvers, it's not about speed. It's about standing the test of time.
11: You get into a runner's high with it, where it becomes this really out-of-body
10: experience. But at the same time, it's really cerebral. You can see his work across our country, from headstones to war monuments to presidential memorials.
11: It's so totally and utterly who I am that it runs the gamut. I love it. I hate it. It drives me crazy. I am driven by it. So it is all. It's everything.
10: His craft is among the most ancient known to man. So perhaps it's fitting that the John Stevens shop where he works dates back to 1705. Tucked away on this quiet street for the last 310 years, it has changed ownership only once, in the 1920s when Nick's grandfather bought it from the Stevens family. Who's that guy? So this is my grandfather.
11: Is it really? Yeah, so all the time I'm working in here, he's looking <laughs> down on me, and you know, making sure I get it right.
10: Do you always get it right?
11: No, not always. <laughs> not always.
10: To ensure that Nick gets it right, he begins each job with calligraphy. Designing the letters freehand on brown butcher paper. And this is really
11: the way the Romans used to lay out all of their lettering. Can I try? Yeah, absolutely.
10: This is without any experience.
11: Whatsoever. And then twist a little bit to get thin. There you go. That's good. I like that. And then let it out. That's it.
10: I love it. A third generation carver, Nick began his apprenticeship under his father at the age of 15. What was it like to have your dad as your teacher, your mentor? It
11: was just like work, 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 work. When I got uh, further and further into it, I realized, okay, I'm I'm really capable of of doing this well.
10: So well that in 2010, he received a prestigious MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, a so-called genius grant, the first and only stone carver to earn that recognition. You're getting pretty tight there, Nikki. John Benson is Nick's father and mentor. At 75, he's now retired. Sono pazzi
13: questi Romani. They're all crazy, these Romans.
10: But in his day, he was a superstar. His work can be found everywhere from Rockefeller Plaza in New York City to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. There's
13: a tremendous emotional appeal about a carved letter. It partakes of the substance of the building.
10: Famed architect I.M. Pei commissioned Benson to work on the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. They didn't always see eye to eye.
13: And I can remember having an argument about where some lettering would go. And we argued for 20 minutes. He wanted it in one place. I moved it. Then he wanted to move it again, and I dug my heels in. Who won? I turned to him and I said at the end of it, when I knew he wasn't going to budge, I said, well, Mr. Pei, it's your building. He said, yes, it is.
10: <laughs> Perhaps his best known work is the John F. Kennedy gravesite at Arlington National Cemetery. He recalled the importance of it in the 1979 documentary Final Marks.
13: This was the biggest job of lettering that uh, our time had seen. More people were going to see this, more people were going to look at this as a piece of lettering, whether they were conscious of it or not.
10: It earned him unique stature in American arts.
13: And for a tiny little period there, I was unquestionably the best of the world at it.
10: But there were only about ten of us.
7: <laughs> Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new
10: generation of Americans. And as if echoing John Kennedy's words, for the Benson family, you might say stone etching is ingrained in its DNA when did your grandfather design these inscriptions he
11: designed them back in the late 40s early 50s
10: nick's grandfather john benson senior designed the letters on the marine corps war memorial which honors americans who captured the island of iwo jima from the japanese like grandfather like father like son it was nick who carved the letters on the martin luther king jr memorial with its bold proclamation.
14: We will be
3: able to hew out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope.
10: His work is also found on the World War II Memorial. It took Nick and his team 10 and a half months to complete these inscriptions, 2,885 characters. So is this the quote? And for those wondering what happens when you make a mistake...
11: We misspelled the word presence. And it was early on, and we hadn't gotten very deep, but I had to grind out a big section of this and re-spell it correctly. So if you run your hand across, you can feel a very subtle dish here in the word presence. But no one can tell. I've just outed myself, though.
10: (laughs) (laughs) But no matter the magnitude of the job, Whether a monument on the Washington Mall or a simple headstone, in the end, a memorial is an honor and a dedication.
13: A legacy of 300 years of responsible and well-made work is enough for anybody. Very few people can have that, and I can claim that. I can claim to be connected to something which has survived in diverse societies through war and peace in this same ridiculously limited little town for 310 years. And that's amazing.
4: And now, a milepost by which to remember the we. A new study by the London School of Economics says that when it comes to losing weight, The best exercise is a brisk walk. The study analyzed British health records from 1999 to 2012, focusing on measures like body mass index and waist circumference. And what it found was that people who regularly walked at a brisk pace for more than 30 minutes did better than people who indulged in other exercises, including swimming, cycling, working out at the gym, and even dancing to get the weight loss that you'd like. The study says to take a hike, a better way of staying slim than even going to the gym. Ignore the folks who like to boast that their workout takes off the most. It's not enough to talk the talk. You truly have to walk the walk.
2: Not that I do now, but I really had no clue what I was doing.
4: Ahead, actress Jennifer Connelly.
12: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Here. Me.
9: Your date? It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood.
4: Jennifer Connelly won an Oscar for her role opposite Russell Crowe in the 2001 film, A Beautiful Mind. Quite a different role from the one that she plays in her latest film. Tracy Smith has our Sunday Profile.
9: Excuse me, can
12: you smell a cigarette? Oh, sure. Thank you.
9: In the new movie, Shelter, Oscar-winning actress Jennifer Connelly is a homeless heroin addict on the streets of New York City. Dirty, emaciated, desperate, and almost too believable. How detailed do you get when you're getting into a character? Like, how much do you need to know?
2: I get really detailed. I was very specific about, like, you know, my... I think if for a character like Hannah, who is, you know, has this habit, um, her world is reduced to getting her daily fix, and it's very much revolved around her kit, her, her you know, her drugs and her gear, and so I was very specific about Bag and what kind of bag and, you know, what kind of needles. I mean, this is maybe a little more information than you want. Excuse me, can you use person change?
9: In this case, it was so authentic that when you were out on the street panhandling, you know, with your cup, people actually were giving you money, like real New Yorkers were stopping and giving you money?
2: Yeah, I had that happen. It was... It was really uncomfortable. I felt terrible. <laughs>
9: The film is a love story about two of the city's estimated 60,000 homeless. And when Jennifer Connolly takes on a role, there's no off switch. Go! It's hard for me to stop thinking about what's coming up. Does it keep you up at night? Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Are you a little obsessive about it? Just, maybe just, a, little, just a little bit. <laughs> Her dedication made things a lot easier for the crew. It was the first time that Paul Bettany had ever directed a film, or, for that matter, his wife.
15: She has to go to some really dark places in in the film, but I'm pretty convinced she trusted me because she knew she could just beat the hell out of me for the next 25 (laughs) years if I got it wrong.
9: (laughs) No worries there. Jennifer Connelly has spent a lifetime making directors look good.
12: He worked really hard for that house.
9: She's at her best as the troubled beauty, whether she's a woman defending her home. I lived here and you stole this house from me. Or the loyal wife keeping it together while the world crashes down around her.
2: Punish me! Punish me, Noah! Not them!
9: You don't do a lot of comedies. Why not? No,
2: I've done a few. God, I don't I don't know. Um... I don't get cast in them very often.
9: <laughs> Are you funny? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not.
2: You don't think so? Probably not. I don't know. But I tend to get cast more in dramas. And that's okay. I think it's my eyebrows. It's very your eyebrows. Ser- <laughs> I look very serious. I look very stern.
9: Yes, it's all about the eyebrows. I look
2: stern even when I'm not stern. <laughs> For if I'm not feeling cross, I look a little bit cross. I <laughs> can't help it, it's just my face. AND THAT FACE
9: HAS OPENED A FEW DOORS.
2: CERTAINLY BEING IN PLACES LIKE THIS, IT'S KIND OF MEDITATIVE.
9: JENNIFER CONNOLLY WAS BORN IN UPSTATE NEW YORK AND SPENT PART OF HER CHILDHOOD CLIMBING TREES HERE IN THE LITTLE TOWN OF WOODSTOCK. I WAS
2: KIND OF A LITTLE BIT OF A TOMBOY.
9: Tomboy or not, she did clean up pretty well. Connolly started modeling in grade school, and that led to her being cast at age 11 in Sergio Leone's 1984 epic, Once Upon a Time in America. Did you have any idea how incredible that was at the time? I just had no clue what I was doing. Not that I
2: do now, but I really had no clue what I was doing. There are so many first things. It was my first time on a movie set, and it was my first time out of America. We filmed in Italy, and um, it was my first kiss. I had to kiss this boy in the scene, and it's the most chaste thing you've ever seen, but I was just mortified that it was in a movie. And um, it, the whole thing was, like, was larger than life and, and um, magical, you know, really magical.
9: Not all of her roles after that were quite as magical, but her turn as a desperate drug addict in Requiem for a Dream established her as a serious actress.
2: I'm wondering,
9: Professor Nash,
2: if I can ask you to dinner.
9: And this one would make her a household name. You do eat, don't you? How emotionally draining was that movie?
10: Maybe... You're sick.
2: It was very demanding in that way. But also I was so I was just so grateful to have the opportunity. You know, I remember I I'm reading the script and thinking, God, if only they'd give me this job. I'd love I won't ask for another good job again, I promise. <laughs> Shouldn't have made that promise. But um, I felt very strongly about it. So I was really uh, I felt very grateful to be there all the time.
9: This is real. For her role as the wife of brilliant but tortured mathematician John Nash, Jennifer Connelly came away with an Oscar, and it turns out, a whole lot more.
15: Maybe you're just better with the old integers than you are with people.
9: You may recall that Paul Bettany was also in the movie, and though they never shared a scene, they caught each other's eye. Director Ron Howard knew something was up. On the very last day of shooting,
1: Paul was kind of playing his guitar, and he's a pretty good musician, and, and I felt like she was not just listening to the song. I thought she was, I thought she was really connecting, and my director's eye was telling me that, I, this, that th- there's something,
15: there's some connection going on. There's a little electricity here.
9: <laughs> you brought a guitar, <laughs> and there was a spark there.
15: Oh, I'm here to tell you, if you're gonna marry up, guitars <laughs> work, okay? That's a, for all the boys out there. If you're... <laughs> Intending on marrying up the they fall for the guitar thing. Yeah. Is you know, that it's, true? It's was true. there a I moment? Knew, I, knew the, I knew the moment.
9: But neither acted on it until September eleventh, two 2001, when Paul was in Italy and saw that New York City, Jennifer's city, was under attack.
15: Like so many uh, people in that moment, my life changed. I went home to this house and spent two days trying to ring this woman in New York City that, I sort of really barely knew, and I thought, why am I and I couldn't get through? Nobody could get through to new york and I thought, why am I ringing this woman up that I barely know for you know the last forty eight hours <sighs> I, I sort of realized I was in 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 love and 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 i um I finally got through to her and i said um i said, i'm coming over and let's 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 get together and she said yes um which was surprising they were married new year's
9: day 2003 and have two children together shelter is their most recent baby
1: i just need a little bit of money
9: and just a little bit more time and i'm gonna be home she may have that stern look on her face but jennifer Connolly says behind it all is a grateful heart
2: i'm really blessed i love my job I love going to work. I just love it. I love getting it. I love preparing for it. I love the whole process. I love the whole ritual. I love being on set. I'm very lucky. Lucky girl.
3: Based on the true story, Trumbull,
4: the highest paid writer in
3: Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs.
5: Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors.
3: So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific.
13: Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have.
3: Trumbo, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November, everywhere. Thanksgiving
4: the photographer who captured these images is reaching new heights every time he reaches for his camera with Lee Collin we will watch him at work
6: at
7: first glance his images look more like circuit boards nerve centers surging with energy but while these are hubs of activity they're not the kind in our computers these are the world's great cities,
8: photographed the way the heavens see them, the sparkling spectacles below. It's almost as you watch the avenues up and down, you're feeling the arteries of the blood flow of the city. You literally perceive the depth and the three-dimensionality of the earth in a different way, and you see distances in a different manner. They look much smaller, much more within reach.
7: Vincent Laforet, has taken aerial photography to new heights. His images have transformed the spaghetti bowls of LA's freeways, the glittering strip of Sin City, Las Vegas, and made London's Big Ben look more like a big jewel.
8: It was almost an out body experience because it's just so beautiful from up there.
7: There are just a few of his godlike glimpses that he's publishing in a new book, fittingly, called Air.
8: Since I was 13 years old, you know, like everyone else, I look out of the windows of a commercial aircraft and I'm fascinated by it. I see every little intersection, the police cars, the stadiums, and you wonder what's going on down there. You can see this incredible diorama of activity. Vince spends a lot of time in helicopters, but
7: not the way you might expect. He doesn't just hover a few hundred feet above as you do in most choppers. Vince asks his pilot, to take him up to nine, 10, 11,000 feet and higher, Altitude's helicopters
8: rarely fly. Some veteran helicopter pilots actually refuse to go up there. They're just not comfortable. The first time I went up, it was scary because I'd never been that high. An open window or door in a harness leaning out and you see planes going right underneath you, your heart skips a beat.
7: So when he asked us to join him on his recent flight over the city of Miami, well, how could we resist? It's the best seat in the house. You got it. We took off just before sunset and headed east toward Miami Beach. With a brief stop, hovering over a couple in a pool. What is it that you're really looking for?
8: I'm looking down there and trying to make order out of chaos. I'm uh, looking for pattern, geometry, color, uh, and light
11: like when you're literally leaning out over the edge of the chopper. You forget about it after a while. You're so focused on getting that image.
7: Do you ever think about the fall? The only time I thought about it was at high altitude over in New York. That's when a physicist explained to him that a fall from that high up could last a terrifying 41 seconds. That's how long the fall would be.
11: Yeah, and I was like, thanks for telling me, now I know. Uh, <laughs> Too long.
7: way too long. All right, let's go towards that. outside looking wet.
6: Okay, you got it.
7: Once it got dark, we started going higher. Now, helicopters can be like flying blenders. They vibrate wildly. And Vince has to try to hold the camera steady while shooting at very low shutter speeds, often as the chopper goes into steep banking
6: turns. I'll get you the top of the hole in a second here. Coming in? Perfect. Beautiful. Oh, that was a sick
7: the hot Florida air got cool and crisp as we climbed even more. Until we were at about 8,000 feet. Nothing between us and downtown Miami except air.
8: As a photographer, or as a visual communicator, you try to find images no one's seen before. That's your goal. And that's a pretty tall order in 2015 when everyone has a camera on their phone.
7: Lafray is used to breaking ground, although he's usually on the ground to do it. Back in 2008, he was one of the first to shoot video on a 35 millimeter digital camera. His mini movie called Reverie was something few had ever seen. Certainly not from what most considered basically a still camera, but that's just him. Ever since he was a child, something about the visual just clicked.
8: And when I was 15, I asked my father, who was a photographer, can I borrow your camera? And then I picked (laughs) up this camera, I took a picture and I was done I was like, that's it. He was rarely without a camera after that.
7: And he soon became the youngest staff photographer ever hired by the New York Times.
8: I would always say I want to find something that people either people can't see or don't want to see. So you climbed all the way up. There.
7: He once scaled the antenna on top of the Empire State Building, sand safety harness, mind you, just to get a shot like this.
8: This is about 1,475 feet up.
7: In the days after the attacks of 9-11, Afray was dispatched to Pakistan much to his surprise.
8: I was not a war photographer.
7: You didn't want to be on the front lines?
8: No. When bullets fly, I hit the ground and I stay down.
7: But staying down turned out to be his secret, capturing not so much the war,
8: but the victims of it. These were real people, you know, that had families that were just as afraid as people back in the States.
7: LaFerre shared the Pulitzer Prize for feature photography that year. He was only 27.
8: That and Katrina, a few years later, are the two stories that really formed me as a journalist. When you see what happened in New Orleans to Americans, you know, in our country, that really shakes your foundation up pretty seriously. So seriously that Laforet
7: needed a change. He quit his job as a photojournalist and decided to pull away from it all for a while. Now you're doing something where there aren't people and perhaps emotions in your pictures anymore.
8: There's something very odd that happens when you go up in the air, in that, ironically, it's kind of intimate. I I can't explain it. Vincent LaFerre
7: has always pushed the envelope, but for him, it's not about being a daredevil. It's about finding and capturing what we often lose on the ground, a sense of peace and perspective.
8: I think when you take a step back from anything, you see things more clearly, and in a visual way, I think air is a representation of that. has to literally take some distance from the street-level view, and you see we're all in this together. Lost
4: and found. Next.
1: <laughs> what is it?
4: What could lead a very young girl to experience her very first tears of joy? Steve Hartman has a case of lost and found.
16: Your hands are so sticky. Whoever coined the phrase military brat a paper towel. obviously never met the okay. angelic daughter of Army Staff Sergeant Nicholas Pogham here. and his wife Jen. Mackenzie is three, and if you look closely at pictures of her over the years, you'll notice something. That giraffe, which she calls Raffi, is in almost every shot.
12: I guess they call it like a lovey. She always
2: wants to go to bed with it. When she's sick, she wants it. It's like her friend, the way that she acts with it is like it's her friend.
16: Jen says this friend has been Mackenzie's constant through their many moves and has been especially comforting during Nick's deployments.
2: When he's gone for weeks and months at a time, she still has this one thing.
16: Had this one thing. Sorry. It got lost during their most recent move. Raffy is her her lifeline.
12: It's it's one of the only things that she has all the time.
16: I understand. To some, this may seem like much ado about nothing, but losing a lovey can feel Raffy. like a very big deal.
1: Where are you, Raffy?
16: As this home video shows, Mackenzie first noticed Raffy was missing right before their move from Washington State to Pennsylvania.
12: I'm gonna take him to Pennsylvania.
16: Her parents assumed he was in a box somewhere. But for 11 long days, Mackenzie had to live without her soulmate, until finally, at the very end of their unpacking. As soon as Jen found it, she cut open the box. and I was like, you know what? Let me record this reaction. We (laughs) have to get this. They hid Raffi in the refrigerator and told Mackenzie to get a drink. As you would expect, she was delighted to be reunited.
10: (laughs) What is it?
16: But in this moment, Mackenzie made another, even more surprising discovery that a very strange thing happens when you're really, really happy.
12: Choochee! Oh, my eye Aww, cause you're happy!
2: He's back now! <laughs> In all of her life, she'd never been so happy that she cried.
10: He's Are back,
2: Chooch!
16: <laughs> it's gotta feel weird the first time. But surrendering to this quirky human trait can be one of life's greatest joys, as I'm sure some of you at home
12: can now attest. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
4: Thank you very much. Next, Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders. And later, the forgotten heroes. Presidential candidate Bernie Sanders is riding a wave of support that may be surprising to a lot of people, though perhaps not so surprising to the people in his political base, Burlington, Vermont, which is where our Jim Axelrod caught up with him.
14: Before you said it, I said, don't underestimate Bernie Sanders.
17: Hi. Best of luck. Thank you very much. How are you doing?
8: Pretty
14: good, sir. Thank you for running. Thank you. Let's ask you, does this feel good? Of course it feels good. It feels great.
0: And Bernie Sanders said to me, you shouldn't vote for Hillary.
14: <laughs> <laughs> the striking thing about Bernie Sanders is not that he's a man whose time has come.
5: Bernie, thank you so much. <laughs>
14: I'm Bernie Sanders. I'm running for Congress. I know. It's that he's been waiting so long.
5: Love to hear you talk on TV. Thank you.
14: Six. For his time to get here. We do two a minute, we're doing well.
17: We have the wealth in this nation to provide a decent standard of living for all of our people. Demand pay equity for women workers.
14: What you were talking about in 1988 and what you're talking about in 2015, it's the same thing. More and more Americans are catching on to what I have been talking about for decades.
17: What we need to do is radically change the priorities of this nation.
14: Do you feel a little bit of satisfaction like suddenly you people are listening? Yeah. Were you waiting for America to catch up with you? (laughs) Well, I'm glad that it's happening.
9: Please welcome Senator Bernie Sanders.
14: After 40 years of trying to gain traction with his message, Sanders, the 74-year-old Democratic Socialist Senator and former mayor of Burlington, Vermont, is suddenly dancing with Ellen. I don't have a super pack. I don't even have a backpack. (laughs) I carry my stuff around loose in my arms like a professional. He's being parodied by dead ringer, Larry David. I own one pair of underwear. That's it. (laughs) Some of these billionaires, they got three,
4: four pairs.
14: Were you watching Saturday Night Live? I didn't. Well, I've seen it. Who told you this
17: is... Who didn't tell me? I got it heard from 20 different people. Did you laugh? Yeah, it was very funny.
14: (laughs) BernieSanders.com. Check it out! It's a mess! And he's running neck and neck with Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire by calling for a revolution. The only way
17: we really transform America and do the things that the middle class and working class desperately need is through a political revolution. Political
14: revolution, that's a big term.
17: Look, in the last election, Jim, 63% of the American people didn't vote. 80% of young people didn't vote. Big money is increasingly buying political elections. A political revolution means that we involve tens of millions of people in the political process today to stand up and fight for their rights, to stop the disappearance of the American middle class and say that our government belongs to all of us and not just a handful of wealthy campaign contributors.
14: I'm just wondering if you're misreading what it is American people want. No, I'm not. You check out the polls. I know how much you love conventional wisdom. <laughs> In May, when you say, hey, I'm going to do this, conventional wisdom holds Senator Sanders is a fringe candidate, he's a socialist, he's not going to get any traction. Yes. Now here we are, and it looks like you got a little more traction than the experts thought you would. Yes. Why? Because you and
17: the punditry and the corporate media you know, have a view of the world, which I think is very out of touch with what the american people are feeling. You really don't like us? No, no, it's not a question of not liking you. I like you. You're a very nice guy. What corporate media is about is very often deflecting attention away from the most significant issues facing our country and giving us entertainment all the time. And I get upset that media by and large is more interested in dumb things that somebody says or how much money I'm raising. No one cares about that. We got to focus on the real issues facing America.
14: Hey, how you doing? If Sanders is the junior senator from Vermont, his matter-of-fact style is all Brooklyn, where he was born and raised among working-class immigrants, many of them Jews like himself, whose families had fled discrimination in Europe. Economic inequality, it's your reason for being, and I'm wondering where that came from. I will tell you where
17: that came from. When you're five or six years old, and you hear your parents arguing and sometimes pretty fiercely. It's very disturbing to a child. And my parents did. Over money? Over money, almost always. My father came to this country from Poland at the age of 17 without a nickel in his pocket. He always had a job, but he never made a lot of money. So we were never poor, but we just never had a whole lot of money. I think we were solidly lower middle class. But you could have then said, you know what, I'm gonna go to medical school and make money. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. But you didn't. No, I didn't. I mean, I think, from an early age, and again, what I cannot tell you, you ask the fair question, I just don't know the answer why we turn out the way we do.
14: It is the rare politician who will admit he doesn't have all the answers. But uncommon has long been one of the more polite descriptions of Sanders. After all, how many candidates have disclosed they have five-figure credit card debt? You have to become an open book in a way you've never been before. For instance, between 25000 and $65,000 in credit card debt.
17: My wife handles that. I think actually that's been paid. Look, we do fine financially. A United States senator makes a good living. But how do
14: you get that much credit card debt? I actually don't know.
17: You have to ask my wife that. But I think we have paid it all off. Do
14: you think in some way that makes you more relatable to the average American?
17: <laughs> Maybe, but that wasn't the intention, I'm sure.
14: Okay.
17: He's been with his second wife, Jane.
5: What, the- Pitch was a little on the inside.
14: For 34
17: years... <laughs>
5: Thank you, Grandma.
14: <laughs> ...they have seven grandchildren between the two of them. Whoa! You knew going into this, that would we be the deal.
5: We didn't expect to take off so quickly. Whoa! Unbelievable. I said to him when we were talking about whether he should run, up, like, isn't there another way you can get the issues out? This is the ultimate
14: I-told-you-so moment yeah, in a marriage. Yeah, it is. It is. As Jane Sanders knows better than anyone, her husband is always going to do it his way.
5: He's not really into the stagecraft. We do try to point it out every now and then that he needs to pay attention.
14: But he fights you every step of the way?
5: Oh, yeah. He is all policy still.
14: How many of you guys are looking
17: forward to going to college? Raise your hand. How many are worried about the cost of college?
14: As this campaign evolves, the extent to which you need not to change your message but to change the delivery mechanism so that it's not eat your peas. I understand. Do you I, run the risk of being too serious? I, you know, I plead guilty. You hate the question? No, no, it's a fair question. I know how to do this stuff. Hey,
17: how you doing? Let me tell you a few jokes, and I know you're too dumb to wanna listen to a speech beyond three minutes, so I'm gonna be a brief. Vote for me, I'm great, everybody else is terrible. Have a nice day! I don't do that. If we stand together, there is nothing that we cannot accomplish, and that is exactly what this campaign is about. Can't be politics as usual. I ain't a candidate of the politics as usual.
14: With Hillary Clinton starting to expand her lead in polls nationwide, the stakes are growing ever higher as Bernie Sanders prepares for the Democratic debate CBS News will host this Saturday. You are not running just to get a good speaking slot at the Democratic National Convention. No,
17: we are running to win. I fully admit we are the underdogs. We started this campaign at 3%, 5% in the polls. Nobody thought that we could win in New Hampshire, win in Iowa, and yet we're doing well in both of those states, and we're doing well around the country. So we are in this race to win it.
11: The authenticity of their gratitude is astonishing.
4: A dispatch from Korea. For three years in the early 1950s, troops from the United States fought a very costly war in Korea. The battle to keep the communist North from conquering the South is sometimes referred to here in America as the Forgotten War. But the U.S. sacrifice is far from forgotten by the nation our troops helped to save. Seth Doan has a dispatch from South Korea.
17: Korea, a crowded little finger of land extending out of Asia's mainland. A nation not much larger than our state of Minnesota.
1: On June 30th, 1950, five years after World War II ended, America went to war again. US ground troops were sent to Korea, where forces from the communist North, aided by the Soviet Union and then China, were threatening the pro Western government in the South. The three year conflict overshadowed by the Second World War is often called the Forgotten War these are its forgotten victims, the families of nearly 8,000 men still classified as missing in action.
5: MIA is a a very difficult term to
10: live with, not knowing. It's hard to put closure when you don't know.
1: Felt like an orphan was an orphan. They called us war orphans. John Zimmerley's father, an Air Force captain, disappeared while flying a night mission in 1952. He wasn't known to be killed in action. He wasn't known to have died in a prison camp. He's just missing. A fate shared by many men, lost in areas difficult to access, some inside North Korea. In May the siblings spouses and children of two dozen U.S. service members who never returned from the battlefield were invited as guests of the South Korean government to visit the country where their loved ones were last seen. For most it was the first time they'd ever come here. The trip was organized by volunteer Sonny Lee who was born near Seoul during the war. Why does the South Korean government spend this sort of money to bring the families of veterans here?
12: To pay back, um, to show them how much we appreciate it.
1: And to introduce Korea to the families who sacrificed so much. Showing off its music, its dances, even its fashion.
12: I
10: feel
1: <laughs> Families paid for half of the flight. Everything else was picked up by the South Korean government.
5: It's overwhelming.
1: Suzanne Schilling's dad, a Marine pilot whose plane was shot down over North Korea in 1952, was honored as a hero.
5: We all thought it was a tour of Korea. We'd see battlefields, we would see memorials had no idea that they were gonna celebrate us at the level that they did.
1: Memorial services were held at the National Cemetery, at a military base, and near the demilitarized zone that divides North and South. At the War Museum, families found the names of their loved ones inscribed on a wall. Robert Warren's father disappeared during a reconnaissance mission behind enemy lines. I've never seen him memorialized or commemorated or
11: anything of that nature in the United States. And to come all the way to Korea and see his name on the wall was a, a, a shock, a surprise, and
1: something I was not emotionally prepared for at the time. MORIN WAS ALSO NOT PREPARED TO SEE SOUTH KOREA'S APPRECIATION FOR AMERICA'S ROLE IN A WAR FOUGHT MORE THAN 60 YEARS AGO. THE AUTHENTICITY
11: OF THEIR GRATITUDE IS ASTONISHING. I MEAN, THEY COULD NOT POSSIBLY FAKE WHAT WE'RE EXPERIENCING FROM PEOPLE HERE. IT JUST, THERE there AREN'T
1: THAT MANY GOOD ACTORS IN SOUTH KOREA. When you look at these names, you know some of the families.
12: Oh yes, many of them. Um,
1: Sunny Lee, who now lives in Utah, first pitched to the Korean government the idea of a trip for these families of those missing in action. Why do you take this so personally? Why do you feel so deeply?
12: Well, it's like, uh, you know, if you are in a burning car, somebody came to save your life. Don't you feel that the, the, you're a hero to pay back for the rest of your life, I feel like that.
1: We have stopped the shooting. When the armistice was signed in July 1953, South Korea lay in ruins. People were starving. Millions were dead. But within 60 years, and with the help of foreign aid money, South Korea transformed itself into the world's 14th largest economy and 6th largest exporter in part due to the popularity of Korean brands, including Samsung and LG, Kia and Hyundai. Economists refer to it as the miracle on the Han River, a miracle that South Koreans insist in part resulted from the American sacrifices that earned them their freedom from communism. This trip was a celebration of that sacrifice for what John Zimmerley calls war orphans. I'm here
13: with other war orphans and all of a sudden we all have that camaraderie. We've seen it, all the pictures just kind of arose in one line behind me. It was like all the guys were here, all the guys that were missing had come back. It was, it's the most, it's, it's the most emotional I've gotten about this whole issue. And I have had emotional moments over the past, but
1: all of a sudden it made sense. Finally finding a sense of closure, more than 60 years later.
4: I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning.